Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. Today, officially, we get to get into the book of Genesis. I know some of you have been looking forward to this. How many of you have ever tried the Bible reading in a year thing, or you just think, I'm going to start, and we'll see when we finish? And uh, you get off to an okay start in Genesis, right? And then afterwards, uh, it can fall off the rails at some point. Even in Genesis, there's some material that's a bit sticky to work our way through. And uh, as you saw in that little video clip that sets up this series, There is so much that lives in the entire Bible. It's critical that we understand the first half of the Bible, which certain theologians would say is actually Genesis 1 through 11. The very first 11 chapters make up the first half. The second half is Genesis 12 all the way through Revelation 22. So why a series like this? Are we just sort of playing darts and have all the books of the Bible on the dartboard and, okay, Genesis, let's do that? Uh, No, that's not our plan here, but there is a few reasons in particular, two I think of. The first is that we all have stories and we all have deep questions, and uh, how we handle that and what we do with that is vitally important. It predicts a lot about how we live life, and it predicts a lot about what eternity may be like for us. We all have stories and we all have questions. Let's think about this idea of all having stories for just a moment. I want you to imagine with me that you're on a flight somewhere, um, and next to you is a stranger you've never met before. It's a gentleman, maybe middle-aged. They look reasonably put together, um, seem like an interesting person. Uh, You haven't had a conversation yet, but you want to know a little bit more about them and pass some time on the flight. You notice on their hand they have a tattoo uh, with the letter S and then the N, N symbol, and then L. So you wonder, like, is that, are they a Christian? Is that salt and light? Uh, is that, you know, your, your mind's going in all kind of places, but you think that's probably not a good opener for, uh, hi, I'm Mike, and what's SNL? Uh, not SNL as in Saturday Night Live, because there's the and symbol there, but you're wondering, and so you're a friendly person, so you do strike up a conversation, just get to exchange, you know, a little bit about each other, and you find out this person's actually a CFO, chief financial officer for a large charitable organization that houses people that are uh, in addiction and street life and they help them have opportunities towards freedom and you're quite compelled by their story and it's quite interesting to you. And after several minutes of this in-flight conversation, there's this sense of rapport and you're like, I think it's okay for me to ask about that tattoo now. So you go there and you say, okay, can I just ask, I noticed your tattoo on your hand, what's that about? And instead of explaining it right away, he says, you know what, Um, I'll go backwards and just say, World War I, my great-grandfather escaped Europe with his wife and young child, and it was a terrible journey for them, but they made it to a coast where there was a ship leaving for America, and they took it. It cost everything they had. They came with their clothes on their back. It took them uh, a long time to cross over the Atlantic. As they knew they were approaching America, it was a densely foggy day, so they couldn't see anything around them. The sea was a bit rough. And all of a sudden, as they were waiting on the outside deck, knowing they're approaching a shoreline somewhere, the fog breaks, and he sees the Statue of Liberty, and he collapses to the deck floor and yells, I'm safe. We're going to be free. And so this neighbor to you tells this story and then says, so my great-grandfather set up a new life in North America. Our families moved around a bit, and we knew the pain of the past, but my grandfather's courage and his experience has meant so much to the generations that follow, and it imprinted upon our family. And so, I mean, I think you're compelled as you're hearing about this, but you're not sure about the tattoo yet. And he says, you know, because of the sacrifices of my great-grandfather, and he just knew there was so much opportunity for everyone that followed him in the family, and so education was a high priority. And so whether I wanted to or not, I had to go get a degree, and so I'm a bit of a numbers guy, so I was in an accounting pathway, and I ended up 
taking a job after I graduated and I was making an enormous salary as an accountant for a large firm, but in my, in my experience, I just started feeling a little bit empty, uh, like I wanted something more than just numbers to work with. I wanted to know that I wasn't just filling somebody's pocketbook, but I wanted to make a difference in the world because I just think about the people around me that have helped with that. And, and so I, t I took a significant pay cut to join this charitable organization. And I just have this core conviction that everybody should have the opportunity to feel safe and to feel free. Because my great-grandfather had that experience and when he died, me and my brothers, we got this tattoo, S and L, safety and liberty on our hands. Now, I just made up that story. Um, but when you get to know people, you sometimes get to know a story, um, their family story, or uh, a bigger story that they feel they're somehow part of. When you know your story, um, it affirms a sense of identity, doesn't it? it? It has the power to give you a sense of purpose in life. It has the ability, a, a compelling story that you're part of, that's bigger than you, actually has great potential to shape your life. Now, here's what's happening. You may have encountered a few people that have a sense of story that's outside of themselves that they're just a small piece of, but they're a piece of it. But that's actually happening less and less in the Western world. If you go into the Eastern world, people understand their story, and it's not their story. It's their family story or their national story, and they can tell you in great detail that story. But in our Western world, we've moved far away from any sense of big story. Uh, and as generations have passed, especially in the last hundred years, it's moved away from our story to my story. So if there is an exchange of story, it's just my story. And it's very rarely uh, ever connected to a bigger story somehow. Our generation seems that they can take the pen from the hand of previous generations or God himself and say, I get to write the story here. And so it's a very self-oriented, self-centered version of story. So we live in an environment right now that lacks compelling, big story. Why this series? We all have story, but we need clarification on it. And we all have deep questions. If you were following along on that little video, you saw some questions. And if you're an honest person, you will know that there's moments in your life and in mine, no matter how long you've been following Christ or exploring faith and philosophy, where you're engaging deep questions from within. Questions like, where did we actually come from? Why are we here? What are we actually? What does it mean to be human? Why does it hurt to be human? Why are we simultaneously capable of so much good and also so much evil? What's wrong with us? What's wrong with me? Where's God in all of this? How will this be fixed? Who does the fixing? And when does the fixing actually occur? And we could go on listing all kinds of questions that have quite a bit of substance and depth to them. Again, why a series like this? Because we have stories, we have questions, and there needs to be something with life inside of it that can help bring clarification to both story and questions. We have stories and questions, and it would be nice to have something that could potentially help make sense of them all, and Genesis 1 through 11 exists in the Word of God, exists in your Bible for that purpose, to help you with this. Now, the second reason why we're doing this series is I have a sneaking suspicion most of us in the room actually want to understand the whole of the Bible better. Am I right? Or am I the only one at times who flips through something in Scripture and think, I am so confused by this? The beautiful thing is that Genesis 1, and 1 through 11 helps set up everything else. And when we have greater clarity on Genesis 1 through 11, we begin to have greater clarity on everything else in a similar kind of way to the series we did last fall on the five trees. Genesis 1 through 11 helps the rest of the word of God to fall into place and come alive in exciting ways. Biblical scholar and author Daryl Johnson says this, the story that begins in Genesis 12 with the call of Abraham and Sarah and walks through the history of Israel leading up to the coming of Jesus Christ and finally to the new heavens and new earth makes sense when it's heard in the context of the story in Genesis 1 through 11. So in this series, our desire together is to discover 
the foundation of scripture, the foundation of our stories, and to delve into their ability to speak to our, to your deepest questions. You are grappling with some of these questions. Your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, people who don't know Christ yet, they are grappling with these questions. And so the clearer we are on how scripture helps us with them, the clearer we can be in our mission in the everyday life. We're gonna give the next eight weeks to these 11 chapters. And I wanna begin by giving credit to, uh, I've already quoted him, Daryl Johnson, biblical scholar, author, has written a tremendous book called The Story of All Stories, which picks up on what God is doing through these first 11 chapters, and it's guiding and helping and influencing us as we go through this series. So today, we're gonna turn to, guess where? Genesis chapter one, in the beginning. So you can go in your Bibles there. It should be one of the easier places to find. It's right after the table of contents. Maybe an explanation of some of the other maps that could be found in your Bible, but you will find Genesis chapter one. But first, before we start reading there, there's something that I think you've picked up or you've heard before in our context, but I want to affirm it again. If you want to know what Scripture means, we have to consider what it first meant. Can I say that again? Because I want to make sure that that... uh, is received with understanding in your heart. If we wanna know what scripture means, when you're opening the scriptures to read devotionally, when we open the word on a Sunday to receive God's voice speaking to us, if we wanna know what it means, we have to consider what it first meant. Scholar uh, Sidney Gradenis says this, a sound rule of interpretation is that one must first hear an Old Testament text as the author intended Israel to first hear it. So again, by the Spirit's help in our day and age, isn't it a wonderful thing that the Word of God still speaks to us into the everydayness of what life is like for us? I I think you've discovered that too, that you can read ancient text and find it's actually talking to me on Tuesday in 2023. That's phenomenal. That's something God spoke thousands of years ago to a particular people for their particular moment still speaks to you in your particular moment. But so that we don't get off track and misunderstand or misinterpret, it helps us. In fact, it's vitally important that we understand what it first meant. So many of us are familiar with having gone through Genesis 1 before. But today, before we get into some of that, I want us just to give some consideration to What might this have meant to Israel when they first heard this thousands of years ago? Here are three considerations we need to approach Genesis 1 as we think about what this meant to Israel. Here's the three considerations. The first is this, ancient Near Eastern origin stories. Israel was a nation that belonged to God. They were a people that belonged to God. And surrounding them were all kinds of other nations that had their own stories of origin. They had their own deities, they had their own ways of worship, and in some ways there were similarities, and in some ways there were vast differences. It will help us to remember that as we go through Genesis 1 and even these first chapters, Israel is hearing this in the context of what the nations around them believe as well. And so God has something to say in the midst of that. Secondly, it's important to consider that in Israel's story, They went through the Egyptian captivity experience of hundreds of years and then a miraculous rescue from the grip of the Egyptians called the Exodus. Genesis belongs to a set of the first five books of the Bible called the Torah or Pentateuch. It's the first five books of the Bible. Now, the influence of Moses is all throughout the first five books. But careful study of the first five books Uh, highlights the fact that there are several details in Genesis all the way through the fifth book. There are several details that occurred after Moses had died. So he couldn't have written about what was going to happen later. So while his fingerprints are all through the Pentateuch, there's additional work going on. Scholars would suggest that perhaps the very first written version of the Pentateuch, including Genesis and its Genesis 1 account, the first written version may not have been uh, actually 
transcribed or written down until about 600 years before Christ. The people of God, the ancient Jewish family, were so good at articulating and re-articulating the story of God. I mean, they didn't have pens and paper and text messages, so there was story. They didn't have lights to plug in at night, so when it was dark, you had a fire. You weren't distracted by many things, and so families would tell and retell their story. And it kept growing, and it kept growing, and it kept growing. God inspired it. He protected it. And perhaps by around 600 BC, it's written down, it's copied, it's ready to be put into what's written scripture. Now, if that's the timeline, that leads us to the third consideration. That's around the time of the Babylonian exile. God's people are living with a memory from hundreds of years earlier of Egypt, of captivity there, of the surrounding Egyptian gods and threats that they experienced. They're remembering how God delivered them and set them free. And they're also very aware that they have been unfaithful to God in covenant. And so the Babylonian neighbors have come and taken them captive. And they're living in exile away from their homeland. And so that's an important time for them to be reminded of their story, don't you think? How would they feel if they're not living in Israel? They're not living in Jerusalem, but they've been taken away and they're being treated as slaves. They need their story to be reinforced to them to speak to them. So these are three considerations that help us approach the book of Genesis in the first 11 chapters. So why is Genesis 1 written? We understand it's a creation narrative and we'll get into that in just a moment. Three main reasons why Genesis 1 is included. Number one, it's there to clarify to the people of Israel and to the people of God for all time that there is one God who with his wonderful and powerful words created everything. All the biggest bigness of the universe right down to the smallest microscopic entity in existence. God created it all, and why did he do it? To create a good kingdom that he could reign in and be in relationship in. So Genesis 1 exists to clarify that for those first people of Israel and for you and I today. Secondly, um, Genesis 1 was written to counter the opposing narratives that were threatening the people of God all around them. You can imagine that in their story, their history of thousands of years, there had been nagging influences pushed towards them, thoughts and ideologies, even ancient philosophies and ancient pagan worship systems pressed towards them that may have had a sense of appeal to some of the people of God. You know, there would have been times that in their captivity to Egypt, they would have questioned God and thought, well, maybe actually these Egyptian gods are actually the more powerful ones. Maybe there were creators in the Egyptian world of deities as well. And so there was the temptation to blend thoughts in their Babylonian captivity. Imagine them 600 years before the arrival of Christ, beginning to wonder, why are we still stuck here? Why aren't we home? Why does it feel like the Babylonian gods have defeated us and our God? And so they begin questioning or maybe becoming a little more open to other narratives for how it all began. And so it became vital that their, their story of origins was put in front of them to counter the mixed messages coming from around them. Now that was their world then. Do you happen to live in a time where there's mixed messages about origins? I think we do. So this helps us today. That's the beauty of God's word. Third reason Genesis 1 exists is to comfort. Again, those people, 600 BC, are distressed in their exile. There's chaos, there's darkness, there's a sense of lostness and emptiness in their existence. Well, what's going on in the creation story? To darkness comes what? Yeah. To chaos comes what? Order. And is it happening accidentally or is there an almighty God who's at work over all things? It comforted those first readers it comforted the families of faith from thousands of years ago who retold the story of origins and the story of Genesis around a fire or in a household or in a tent. So Genesis 1 exists to clarify, to counter, and to comfort. When people feel the threat of disaster or destruction or disease, 
and death, as the ancient Israelites did, as you and I do today, it actually can be a comfort to you and I to remember, wait, there is a God who created all, who's intimately involved in our world. Now, I need to just say this. There is not a fourth point on this list which would be, uh, it exists to be a science paper. We live in a world um, that has come out of an era of modernity that highly valued scientific approaches more than any other previous generation. And so we have, as a people, in the end, put unfair pressure on ancient texts of scripture to be scientific papers when they were never first written to be that. Is there scientific clues and information laden in scripture? Absolutely. But it wasn't put there by God's spirit in print because he needed to write an, a scientific essay for humanity on how it all started. It's helpful for us to remember. Now, I'm all for us as a church family in a variety of ways getting into, digging into, exploring, finding life and joy in discovering the scientific realities connected to God's creation and that story. What I'm about to say may bother some of you, but I just need to say it anyways. In a church like ours, we will have some people who embrace a literal six-day creation plan. And we will have people in this same church who embrace something called evolutionary creationism where they believe, yeah, it seems scientifically over time, things have changed and changed and changed, but it didn't happen by accident. Almighty Creator God was at the beginning. Now, as I lay those two things out, some of you are like, well, I'm a bit uncomfortable with that extreme, and I'm a bit uncomfortable with that extreme, but some of those people would be in our church. And that's okay, because at the end of the day, when you stand before the throne of God, he's not gonna be like, literal six days or evolutionary creationism? And you're like, no, 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 blood of Jesus. No, literal six days or evolutionary creation. That's not, a, it's not a salvation issue. What matters in the story is who did the creating. And next week, there's gonna be some important clarifications that maybe help speak to uh, concerns on the extreme here. For those who want to explore a little bit more about scientific support of creation, perhaps even within a literal six-day model, uh, on March 3rd in Black Creek, Creation Ministries, you can Google Creation Ministries, is hosting uh, a talk on that, and you might enjoy learning more about that. Okay, let's begin in Genesis chapter 1. We're only going to read a few verses. Your homework is to read everything in between this week, okay? Let's start in verse 1, and we're going to read the first three verses of chapter one, and then we're gonna flip over to chapter two and read the first three verses of chapter two. And the first selection of Genesis, the first movement in this symphony, is verse one all the way to two, verse three. So let's read these six verses. It says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless. Think about that. The earth was formless and the earth was Empty, think about that. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Imagine that with me, picture that with me. Now, again, your homework is to read everything in between this week. Flip with me now to chapter two, and let's read the first three verses of chapter two. Here's how the creation account concludes. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he rested from the work of creating that he had done. Now, if you're just paying attention to the six verses that we've only read right now, you might have noticed something similar occurring in both sets. Something happens in the first set as the story opens, and something happens in the last set as the story closes. What is it? It's the repetition of this phrase, the heavens and the earth. That's a massive clue for us. 
One of the things we have to understand if we're approaching scripture is what's the genre that this is being written in? Massive clue was given to us here. This is poetic. The genre of scripture's creation and origin story is poetry. There are stanzas, there's repetition, there are patterns. Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 2-3 is a hymn of creation. And so we should treat it like that, shouldn't we? Daryl Johnson says this, it is not a philosophical treatise, although it opens up profound philosophical insights. Nor is it a scientific paper, although it has huge scientific implications. Genesis 1 is a song. Why would God inspire the ancient writers of scripture to pin their origin story in poetic form as a song? Why a song? Uh, I want to ask everybody a question here. Has anybody ever heard of alarm force before? Does anybody know their phone number? Okay, Laura does. Laura, tell us their phone. Oh, you know their phone number too. Did you guys want to do it in unison? Alarm force. We're going to sing it at the end of the service together. <laughs> Alarm force. <laughs> a 1-800 number, a series of a whole bunch of digits. Um, Selloffvacations.com, you know that. Um, Huggies, I'm a big kid. McDonald's, bada bada ba. Give me a break, give me a break, break me off a piece. Maybe she's born with it, maybe it's Maybelline. <laughs> okay, we've got a selection of great material to sing today. <clears throat> Why is Genesis 1 a song? Because you can remember it. It was so important to the ancient people of God that they captured and internalized and remembered their story. So important that God instructed by his spirit those who would capture it and write it to make it poetic, to re reflect the beauty and wonder of what God's done in our world, and to make it memorable for those hearers around campfires and in ancient tents and homes, and when written down to be a, a beautiful written piece, a song for God's people for all time. Now, um, going back to the alarm force you know, thing and the phone number, many of you have you know, memorize the alarm force and their phone number, which is interesting. It would be a pity if somebody obsessed, not just with alarm force and the phone number, but said, you know, 1-800, what is it, 267-2004. I'm curious about the number 800 in there, and I'm gonna devote my life to scientifically understanding the number 800, because it's, it's so meaningful. Now, imagine they have security threats in their home, and they're spending their life obsessing over the meaning and the scientific value of 800. I mean, cool, but if you have a security problem, what are you to do? Phone that number, right? That's the reason the song's there. The number's there so that you can get connected to the bigger thing that will actually help you. There are details in the creation story that at times we might be, feel tempted to obsess over, but miss the whole point, which is this is our story that shapes us. This is our story. It's a song that gives us identity. It's a song that gives us purpose. It actually gives us the phone number of who to call who's responsible for all of this. So don't miss the point by just getting caught up in a few details in the midst of it. Step back and see the beauty and the wonder of here's a phone number. Here's who we get to call. Does that make sense? It's a song. It's intended to be memorable. That's why there's bracketing at the beginning at the end, there's also, and we won't go deep into this, and it's not magical, but it's there on purpose. There's uh, a beautiful repeti uh, rep repetitious use of numbers throughout this creation song. And it's not there for magic or curiosity. It's there to help it be remembered with greater ease by the ancients. And it's, I think, interesting for us to at least look back on now. In the ancient Israelite world, the number seven in scripture represented completeness. So do you think the number seven features in the creation story? 
Well, we know of it at least once because it's, it's a weak process, right? Seven days happen. It appears to be six days of creation, seventh day of rest. Is seven found anywhere else in the story? Let me share this with you. In verse one, in the ancient Hebrew text, there are seven Hebrew words. Don't bother counting in your NIV or your whatever English translation because there will be more. But in ancient Hebrew, seven words. In verse two, there are 14 words, which is seven times seven or seven plus seven. Sorry, seven times two or seven plus seven. Seventh day has 35 Hebrew words, which is five times seven. God, as a name, appears 35 times. Again, seven is in that. Heaven appears 35 times, earth 35 times. It was good is pronounced seven times over. And then this is interesting. The phrase, and God said, appears 10 times. The, the number 10 in the ancient Jewish world meant fullness. Isn't that interesting? How did the story start? God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was, there was formlessness and emptiness. And how does God respond? By 10 times saying something. He's with his words bringing fullness to creation. And it was so appears seven times. It's almost as if when God speaks, powerful things happen. He says something to bring about fullness, and it happens in completeness. Why? Is Genesis 1 intended to be memorable so that it can form identity, form purpose, and put you and I in touch with God? With the remaining moments that we have, I want to share five things with you, and we're going to spend the most time in number two, so don't get alarmed when we're like, we're still in number two, and is it the second service starting now? No, we're, we're going to move through some of this with a bit of pace here, but we begin to make sense of our stories and the deep questions that you and I have in our lives as we allow Genesis 1 to tell us five important things about God. Here they are. Number one, God is. In the beginning, God. I respect the fact that in a room like this or with us online today, there would be some people, and as I bring this up, they're like, well, I'm actually not so sure about that. You're on a journey of exploring that or maybe re-questioning that, and that's okay. Let me just offer quickly a couple resources that might help you in your journey. There's a few books, and there would be many others, but here's two. Tim Keller writes <clears throat> a book called The Reason for God. We have a slide for this, Chris. And secondly, uh, Lee Strobel writes actually a series of books, uh, two that may help you would be A Case for Christ or A Case for Faith. If you are a lifelong believer, but this is now a sticking point for you, and you're like, I'm not sure if God's really there. Believe me, I've been there myself. Um, engage some resources that may help you. Maybe you're not somebody who would say, I follow Jesus, but you're on a path of discovery and you want some additional resources just to engage your thinking in this journey. Check out these books. I think they may help you. Daryl Johnson says this, my heart breaks for the millions of people in our time who are trying to sing the song of life but do not know the first words. My heart especially aches for the millions of children who have never heard how the story begins. The first sentence of the story is joyfully, de uh, joyfully declares, the universe is not an accident. You are not an accident. There is a creator, a person, one as personal as you and me, the creator who delights to create and created you and everything around you. That leads us to our second thing we discover about God in Genesis 1. God is creator. And there's something deeply personal about that. Um, Glenn Scrivener says this, Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Atheists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle. All kinds of other ideas have existed through the ages of history and still to today that do not include a personal creator. Plato, the ancient Greek philosopher, suggested, well, there is no God that's responsible for all of this which was funny because he lived in a world where there's a pantheon of gods, but he didn't really see that there was one that was responsible for everything. But he, he said there's a form of good that might have been responsible for all this. Aristotle, also another ancient Greek philosopher, he suggested there's some sort of unmoved mover out there that's getting things done. But again, this is not personal, knowable God. It's just an unmoved mover. Uh, in Buddhism... Its originator is quoted as saying these two things. There is no God who causes everything. So do not seek a God, but do seek truth. Neo-Confucianism, 
says this, a sum total of all the principles of all things and also the highest principle in each. So that somehow, whatever that is, is responsible for everything. Um, Taoism would say this, that infinite and boundless, it cannot be named. It belongs to where there are no beings. So this is how they're trying to explain an origin without a personal creator. And of course, um, the absolute authority on the subject, uh, the best Jedi of all time, Obi-Wan Kenobi said this, the force is an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us, penetrates us, it binds the galaxy together. And many of us applaud amen at his philosophical wisdom. But again, as wonderful as Star Wars is, it, it perpetuates this idea that there's some sort of, if there was anything that started this, it's an impersonal at best. Very powerful, but impersonal. Contrast that with what we find in Genesis 1. Biblical scholar and author Ian Proven says this, Genesis proposes something quite different from what is proposed by thinkers in both East and West about the nature of the world. It proposes that a personal God created the heavens and the earth. If you pay attention in the Hebrew language to some of the, the words that are actually used for different things, um, there are two different Hebrew ancient words used for this idea of creating something. The first word is this, asa. Can you say asa? And asa means creating something out of something else. So we're taking raw materials here and reforming it into something else, and now we have asad something. We've made something and we use something else. The other word is bara. Can you say bara? The word bara means to create something out of nothing. Now, in the Old Testament, which is written in Hebrew, God asas and humans asa. They can create things out of something else. But in the Old Testament, in Scripture, only God can bara, create something out of nothing. I think in Genesis 1, there are many things we're meant to notice, and I want to just highlight two to you right now. First is this. Remember, it helps us to understand what was going on in the cultures and societies and worlds and nations around Israel through their ancient history. One of the things that was quite common in the ancient world was whenever a temple was to be dedicated, it would be a seven-day ceremony. So that was happening in surrounding nations. And guess what? If you read your Old Testament, when Israel had their own temple, how many days did it take to dedicate it? Seven days. You can read about it in Scripture. So with that in mind, one of the things we're intended to notice that God is gesturing through his song towards all of humanity for his followers then and his followers today is that God is not contained in a church building or a temple building, but the whole earth. The whole universe is the temple of God. In the ancient world, for pagan nations that surrounded, and for Israel itself, when they built a temple, it wasn't first just to be a place of worship. It was the residence of God himself. So God wasn't building all things so he could stay distant of it and kind of be uh, the material existence's neighbor and just peek at it. He built a temple for himself to reside in. So may his temple be filled with worship. Amen? That's his intention. Second thing I believe we're intended to notice is the way in which he's creating, which is with unique detail. Remember in the very first verses of Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. There's interesting imagery that's brought up there, and I want you to see right now that in the first three days of creation, God is doing something, and then in the second set of three days of creation, God is doing something else. Let's look at that chart right now. In the first three days, God first creates light. Day two, dry uh, sky and water. Day three, dry land. So the first three days of creation is God forming. Remember in Genesis 1, it says the earth was formless. So what does he spend the first three days doing? Forming. And then in Genesis 1, 1, it says that it was formless and what? Empty. So what does he spend the second set of three days doing? He's formed something. Now 
He's filling it. Day one, he created light. Day four, it says he creates the lights. Have you ever noticed when you've read through the creation story, are, are the sun and moon mentioned? I hear, yes, yes. And maybe some no's. Um, they are not mentioned by name. There's interesting language used. It says, a greater light and a lesser light. Why might this be happening? Well, remember, again, we have to consider the context into which Genesis was written. The people of God had come out of Egypt. Egypt had all kinds of deities, including a god for the moon and a god for the sun. And so in the creation account, it's as if God's saying, listen, I'm not even going to mention their names. I don't want to bring up those gods for you to get spun out of orbit with. It's just a greater light and a lesser light. That would have been insulting to the Egyptian nation nearby because they thought they were deities and God's saying, no, no, no. As wonderful as the sun is, it has a creator. Some of you know last month, Laura and I had the privilege of spending a bit of time in Mexico together and uh, I got up almost every morning before sunrise, made a coffee and then went to the beach and watched the sunrise. It was great. I loved it. Therapeutic, lovely, warm, all the stuff. One particular morning, there was a couple people at the end of a pier, and they must have been quite new age or something like that. They definitely were sun worshipers. It was a treat to sip my coffee and watch them do their thing, because they stood with the most eager anticipation at the end of the pier, waiting for the sun. We could start seeing the sky getting lighter, and then the clouds lighting up, and there's a lining around them and stuff. And the moment the, light, the sun was visible over the clouds, I mean, they started waving to the sun and jumping. I thought, those people love the sun. Now, I love the sun, too. We've endured a lot of winter here, and this past week, it was very nice that on Valentine's Day, we had a gorgeous, sunny day. I understand what it's like to get close to this idea of worshiping the sun. I don't know about you. But in the ancient world, there were nations that worshiped the sun and worshiped the moon. And so God says, I'm not going to give their name any time in my account of how this all came to be. Just so that you know, as wonderful as the sun is, <clears throat> it is not a God in and of itself. So day five, what happened in day two? Sky and water were made. So day five, what happens? Birds fill the sky and fish fill the water. <clears throat> and then day three is dry land. Day six, on the dry land go creatures and humanity. There is great order in introduced into our world. Yes, there was chaos to begin with, but God shows up finding something formless, saying, I will bring form to it, and then I will fill it. I find it wonderful to see God's handiwork in creation. Number three, we're going to move through these last ones quickly. Third thing we learn about God through this text, God is in community. We're not going to unpack it any further than just pointing out that we come across interesting language where it says, God is speaking and says, let us make people in our image. Who is us? It's interesting, and you can dig into that some more, but it certainly points us towards so many other texts that live in Scripture that point out God is one, Father, Spirit, Son. Fourth thing we learn about God in the Genesis song is God has partners. Who are his partners? Do they have meaning and purpose? How do these partners relate to their world? How do they relate to one another? Can the partners actually relate with God? I mean, that was nowhere near anything like the stories that were surrounding the people of the ancient world that were around Israel. Their stories were that, you know, listen, the gods got into fights of all kinds, and as a byproduct of their fighting, the earth and all creation actually came to be. Isn't that an obscure story? bad fighting, and so let's make the earth, that that's the result. One of the gods in one of the Mesopotamian stories tore another god in half, and that's how he made the sky and the sea and all of that. That's a terrible story. That's difficult. I think it's a bit more refreshing for us to see a god who's intentionally creating and working with partners. Those ancient gods didn't want people for relationship. They were busy either fighting or trying to have parties, and they needed food, and they needed slaves. So in their stories, they created people to be slaves to the gods. In our story, God has partners. So next week, we'll discover a lot more of what that means. What I will say now, though, is if the time period to dedicate a temple is seven days, one of the final things that happened in the ancient world 
is the image of the God was brought into the temple and then was animated and given the opportunity to embody the deity. So if God has partners, if he has an image in this world, what does that mean for you and I? Fifthly, and maybe most importantly for us to land on today, God is Jesus. There are clues already that live in Genesis 1, and they live within the rest of Scripture as well. Listen to this with me in Hebrews chapter 1. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, and at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful, can you say this with me? Word. Colossians 1 says this, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He, speaking of Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. John chapter 1, verse 1. John intentionally writing, drawing his readers as an evangelist towards their origin story, saying words like this, in the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. In the ancient world, the idea surrounding God's people in neighboring nations was this, that chaotic gods were in charge. And this resulted in chaos everywhere on earth as everyone lived in fear of the gods. We live in a day and age today where generally our world believes that chance is in charge. And that results in what for our world? Chaos, as now people believe they are their own god. The good news is what? Genesis 1 refutes both. Pathetic little gods aren't in charge. Guess what? You're not in charge, and neither is chance. There is a God. In the beginning was the Word. He spoke life into creation, and Jesus is that life himself. Maybe, friend, today in this room or online with us, you know what it's like to feel darkness. You, in a way, know part of your life that feels as if it was formless or in chaos or unfulfilled. And the good news is Jesus and him alone has the authority to speak light into your life, to bring purpose and order and fullness. Would you stand with me today? In response to God's work of creating and reintroducing us to his song, would you join me in singing along as Laura leads us in celebrating this together? And so it's really up to you. Where am I placing my trust? Which story has the authority over my life? And maybe I'll say it this way. If God is real, isn't it a beautiful and comforting thing to know that he would create with design and intentionality and he wouldn't spin it to an existence, all things, and then depart? but he would come as close as possible through the person of Jesus Christ. God isn't a distant, absent deity. He's not an impersonal force. He wants you to know he has a name, and it's the most powerful name there is. It's Jesus. As we conclude today, I'm going to call our prayer ministry team to come forward right now. As they are coming forward, I just want to draw your attention to the screen one more time. Some of our life groups or you in your coffee clubs or your friendships may want to discuss what we're talking about on Sundays through this series together. You can uh, take a picture of this if you want. We'll make it available online as well. Here's just a discussion guide. You may even just want to talk it through with your spouse or use it for your own personal study. So begin with reading the whole Genesis 1 text. I would add to that. I didn't put it on the screen there. Uh, but if you're the kind of person that loves digging deeper into stuff, read Psalm 104. Study that one. Um, in fact, maybe for your devotional homework this week, if you don't have a plan, get into Psalm 104. Why? 
The six days of creation and the Sabbath day are built right into it. See if you can find them and allow that celebration, that hymn, a rehearsal of Genesis 1 to be part of your praise to God this week. And then there are four other questions in the conclusion with prayer together for your group. Why do we have prayer ministry available to you today? Because this week, some of you entered into news about your life or your world that felt like instead of more light, there was more darkness. Instead of more order, there was chaos. Maybe there was an interruption. Maybe there's an interference of some kind. Maybe there's a threat to a sense of security in your world. Genesis 1 exists to remind us that Jesus is our creator. And even in the midst of chaos and confusion, he's over all things and he is the only one with all authority that can bring light to darkness, order to chaos, purpose where there is no form or where there is emptiness. You need somebody to pray with you about whatever your circumstance is this week. As we conclude today, these people would love to pray with you. Let's pray together as we conclude. Father, I thank you for each person gathered today. We happen to live, I think, in the most beautiful part of the world. As we celebrate that beauty this week, this coming summer, may we always see your fingerprints. May we know that the clouds and the skies and the mountains and the sea and the rivers and the animals are all whispering the name Jesus to us. Now, as we go into your world on your mission, may your temple be filled with worship all week long. Help us. We need you, God, to bring your message and ministry into the everyday stuff of this week. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the one and only most powerful name. And everyone said, amen. I hope you have a wonderful morning, wonderful afternoon. Maybe go for brunch or something like that. God created food. Isn't that wonderful? Celebrate and delight in his creative power this week. God bless you. Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.